I want to speak to you and then get you in this altar on the prayer of favor, the prayer of favor. I would strongly suggest that you follow the PowerPoint and make some notes because this message will be prophetic for many. And you'll see some things that you've never seen before in prophetic scripture. We've just come through the Holy Week or Easter week, and we've just celebrated the resurrection of the Christ. I want to also stay kind of in that same theme and teach you a little bit about Palm Sunday, the day of lamb selection, and how it all sits into the favor of God. It's an amazing teaching. So turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, starting in verse 1 through 5, the prayer of favor. Say with me, the prayer of favor. Nehemiah, chapter 2, starting in verse 1 through 5. Now, understand, the book of Nehemiah is one of the history books of the Bible. It contains the story of Israel's return from Babylonian captivity and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. Nehemiah was a Hebrew slave that God had raised up in Persia or Babylon to a very high prestigious position. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Now, the cupbearer is prestigious because he would drink the, food, drink the wine first and eat the food first, and if he didn't die, then the king would have his. How'd you like to have that position? A little bit of pressure. And so he was highly favored. Nehemiah, that Hebrew slave, while he's in Babylon, he gets word that the city he loves is in ruins and completely destroyed. And it's in need of repair. And he also realizes that the king he is serving and laying his life on the line for on a daily basis is the one who has destroyed it. And his name is Artaxerxes. Nehemiah begins to fast and pray. The book of Nehemiah can be summed up by saying, Nehemiah sees a problem, recognizes his unique position and purpose, and then he invites God to use him to save a city. Hear it again. Nehemiah sees a problem. Does anybody see problems? He recognizes his unique position and purpose. And then he invites God to save, to use him to save a city. In other words, here I am, Lord, use me. With that as background, look with me to Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1 through 5, as I fill the atmosphere with God's word. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Of course, Nehemiah is speaking. I had not been sad in the presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and gates have been destroyed? By fire. Again, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the man who's destroyed it. Verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Look at verse 8. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Understand, how you pray determines what kind of life you live. If you only pray small, ordinary, get-by prayers, 
you're going to lead a small, ordinary, get by life. But when you have the boldness to ask God to fulfill his will in your life, then you finally get to the point that you begin to ask him to open doors that might otherwise never open. You begin to ask him for the favor to take you further than anyone in your family. You ask him for the favor to do the unthinkable. You ask him for the favor to do the impossible. See, when you pray the prayer of favor, you begin to see the greatness of God's power in your life on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. It becomes a part of the fabric of who you are. I'm praying the prayer of favor. So Nehemiah begins to pray and fast in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. And because he sees all these things happening around him, and he says, Lord, I just can't sit idly by. And the first thing he does is he begins to fast and pray. Nehemiah 1.1 says, night and day, that something could be done to aid Jerusalem. It is something that God is planting deep into the heart of Nehemiah. Now, during this period, Nehemiah had diligently tried to maintain a customary happy appearance, but his great grief for Jerusalem and Judah finally overcomes him, and he begins to be sad in the presence of the king. Now, it's, it's contrary to court behavior for a servant to appear sad. Being sad in the king's presence in Persia was a very serious offense. And you read that in Esther chapter 4 and verse 2. It was believed to be a bad reflection back on the king. That if people were sad, well, that meant that he is ruling incorrectly. And these men, they believe they're gods. They believe they're so wonderful. And so you can't be, you can't be angry or sad in their presence or you risk losing your life. So Nehemiah... He tries to do he best, the best he can. And he's in a place that he's at, you know, in, in court. In, in, all the people in court are walking around with masks on. Literally, they're hurting inside, but they don't want anybody to know that they're hurting. Has anybody ever met someone like that? Where they wear masks because we can't let you really know what we're going through. So Nehemiah, he sees a problem, and he begins to fast and pray. Nehemiah was four months in preparation of fasting and praying before he approaches the king. Look at verse 4 again. The king said to me, what is it that you want? I love the next line. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. Understand, this is what you call a 30-second elevator prayer. He's already invested four months in fasting and praying. But now it's like game on. Here we go, Lord. Much like when you've been praying for something on your job and you get out of your truck, you get out of the car, and you're heading into the office or wherever you work, and suddenly you throw up a head, here we go, God, it's game time. A 30-second, this is what we've been asking for, Lord. This is what we've been praying for, Lord. Here we go. It wasn't an intense prayer. He'd already spent four months in fasting and praying, and now he's standing there at the precipice to see something take place. By an upraised hand, how many know what it is to give a 30-second, let's go, God, prayer? Yeah. So you understand exactly what Nehemiah did. And he gets it, he says, Lord, I really need your touch. Now he's standing before the king. Point number one, the prayer of favor opens closed doors. Say with me, the prayer of favor opens closed doors. Say it again, the prayer of favor opens opens closed doors. I want you to write that down in your Bible. The prayer for favor opens closed doors. 
Friends, in all the wonderful things that God did for the children of Israel, there are few things any more astounding than what's about to happen for Nehemiah. A more daring request has never been made, except possibly the request of Queen Esther to save Israel. Now, if you look at the time frame historically of when Nehemiah was in Persia, and by the way, the Persian Empire kept impeccable records. And so the Babylonians and the Persians kept impeccable records. Based upon Persian records, we know that Queen Esther was sitting at court during the time of Nehemiah in, in the court at the same time. Imagine Esther is there, and so is Nehemiah for the hand of purpose of God. And so he's sitting there, and the king says, what is it that you want? The prayer of favor opens closed doors. It had only been a few years since Artaxerxes had commissioned Rahum and Shimshay, his two right-hand men, to bring a stop to the rebuilding and fortifying of Jerusalem. And you read that in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 8. And the amazing thing is that Artaxerxes granted Nehemiah's request, lock, stock, and barrel, all of it. That a Persian king should have reversed a former decision was unheard of. Again, they considered themselves gods. And being a god, I'm not going back on my word. However, for Nehemiah, he sends him, accompanied by a full military escort, with full authority to reconstruct the walls and fortify the city of Jerusalem that he has just himself destroyed. Only God could cause a door like this to open. And that's why we say the prayer of favor opens closed doors. The prayer of favor opens closed doors. But let me give you some insight into really how the favor of God works. Because God's hand was on Nehemiah for a divine purpose. To fit into prophecy. To fit into the amazing story that would usher in the first Palm Sunday. Please understand, the first Palm Sunday was a day of lamb selection. It was tied all the way back to the Old Testament with the prophet Daniel and Nehemiah. Nehemiah, an ordinary man who God uses in an extraordinary way when the power of God is released on his life. Ordinary to extraordinary. That's how I want to be. Lord, I want to be an ordinary man that you do to do extraordinary things, and then I'll be satisfied when you're done using me to go back to being ordinary. Ordinary to extraordinary. Well, the first Palm Sunday is amazing. The very day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey was a day of amazing prophetic fulfillment. Understand that Daniel's prophecy of 69 weeks of years until Messiah would be revealed was being fulfilled that Palm Sunday with amazing accuracy. Now, the math of the prophetic fulfillment is amazing. Hold your finger here in Nehemiah and turn with me now to the book of Daniel because what happens on Palm Sunday, the first one, Palm Sunday can only be truly understood in light of Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, and then we'll go back to Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1 through 5. There's a prophetic word that is given from Daniel. And Daniel prophesies that there will be a day when the Messiah is going to be revealed, and he tells us precisely, exactly when that day will be. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25. Know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So that's the first key. There's a command that will go forth to build and rebuild Jerusalem. Until the anointed one, Messiah the ruler, comes, there will be 77s and 62 sevens. It'll be rebuilt with a trench, but in times of trouble. 
Now, these weeks that we just read about are not weeks of seven days, but rather they are weeks of years, which is how the Hebrew way of marking time. Now, in simple terms, let me explain to you what Daniel is saying. From the day the command to rebuild Jerusalem to the time the Messiah is going to be revealed, it'll be a period of 483 years. See, biblical chronology is based upon 360 days, not 365 days a year. Their days and years are based on what they call an ecclesiastical calendar, where we use a lunar calendar. So there are 360 days in biblical chronology. Now let's stop and do the math. 483 years times 360 days, that is 173,880 days. Daniel is prophetically saying that in 173,880 days, the Messiah, the prince, will be revealed after there will be a declaration to rebuild Jerusalem. So once they give that declaration, then the time clock is going to begin. Now, both history and scripture supply the next piece of the puzzle. Historians and scripture tell us that on March 14th, 445 B.C., King Artaxerxes of Persia gave the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, and it's recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 through 5. Why did he give this decree? Because an Israelite slave working in the palace who had been fasting and praying for four months that he could be used by God to do something extraordinary comes to him and says, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Remember, Daniel says the very moment that the king gives the decree, that is exactly when the time clock begins, and Daniel says it will be rebuilt, but in times of trouble. And the whole time Nehemiah is building it, Israel is in captivity. That's times of trouble. Are you starting to see the pattern, how God is orchestrating for his glory and his purpose? The prayer of favor opens closed doors. Now let's all add it up and make a mathematical equation so you can really see the favor of God. March 14th, 445 B.C., the day Artaxerxes of Persia granted Nehemiah's request and gave the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, Daniel prophesied that's when the time is going to be, begin to count. And when that, the, the very next day started, 173,880 days from that day, the Messiah is going to be revealed, and that day will be April the 6th, 32 A.D. Now, April the 6th, 32 A.D. was the very moment, the very day, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey as Israel's longed after Messiah. And the people shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Or better translation, Adonai, Adonai to the most high God. And they're waving palm branches and they're crying, save us, save us, save us. Now remember, it is the Passover. Israel, all the children of Israel will bring in their Passover lambs to cover them for their sins for the year. But remember, the high priest would also choose a spotless lamb that he would sacrifice for the nation. 
And he would take that lamb, and he would walk that lamb down the street, and the people would shout at that lamb, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the high priest would take that lamb up into the temple, and that is where it would be slaughtered. Jesus, fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel, also because Nehemiah went to the king, was able to ride in on a donkey as not only Israel's Messiah, but all of eternity's Messiah. He is the perfect Lamb of God. He walks, he rides right in, goes up into the temple. It was not his time yet. Do you see the perfection of God's plan? The prayer of favor opens closed doors. It's the favor of God. And this blows the minds of people who are watching your life. And they say, how in the world did he get that position? How in the world are they advancing? It's the favor of God. The same favor on Nehemiah, the same favor on Daniel. As a child of God, he says, I'm no respecter of persons. I've got a plan and I've got a purpose. Let me explain to you how it works. God said, I have a plan and a purpose for such a time as this. I've got a plan and a purpose for Lamar. I've got a plan and a purpose for the United States. I got a plan and purpose for your life. So here you go, babe. Boom, I'm going to drop some gifts on you. Here's what you need and the giftings and the blessing you need to fulfill my purpose in you. I'm just going to drop it on you. And there are giftings and blessings that you'll need to fill the purpose. Now, there are people in this room right now that you look at your life and there are some things that just fell on you. You don't even know how you got there. It just happened. Find up for his hand. How many know what that's like? Just to have something fall in your lap, you don't even know how it happened, and you say, wow, I can't believe I got this job. Or, wow, I, I can't, we, we got this home. Or, or, wow, how did this happen or that happen? You don't even understand how it all happened. And people are watching you, and they're blown away. And they're saying, how in the world did he get to be a boss when I've got a better education than he has? Or how can he do what he does? It just comes so easy. And, you know, it frustrates a lot of people. They see you. They see you doing things that come so easy. Other people are sweating and pushing, and they can't seem to grasp it. All the doors are closed for them. They're trying to do the best they can to make things happen. They're pushing and sweating, and you're just cruising through on the job. And how in the world did that guy do that? It's called the favor of God. God just dropped some things into your lap. And he said, well, wait a second. I don't know what my giftings are. Your giftings are whatever comes natural, whatever comes easy. You don't have to sweat for it. It just flows from you. You see, when God wants to promote you, he doesn't ask your boss. He doesn't check with your family or your friends. He doesn't go to your next-door neighbor. He doesn't call the head of the denomination to ask permission and say, hey, is it okay that I bless this church right here in Lamar? Is it okay that I send my anointing to them? No, no, he doesn't do that. When God wants to bless you, when God has a purpose, he just does what he wants to do because he's almighty God. He's the alpha and the omega. He's still the beginning and the end. He's still the lily of the valley and the bright morning star. He's God almighty, and he has a plan, and he has a purpose. So he does what he's going to do. Why? Because the prayer of favor opens closed doors. And we need to understand that there is a correlation between the blessings of God and the purpose of God. Oh, don't miss this. 
There's a difference between the blessings of God and the purpose of God. See, as you walk with God and seek to be obedient to him, God will bless you for his purpose. Those blessings are uniquely yours. They belong to you. Many people don't have the same giftings you have. They've been designed by God to uniquely fit who you are, and they're yours. And God doesn't bless you so that you can brag or uplift yourself. God hasn't blessed this church so so we can say, well, we're the largest church in the area. No, God blesses you because he has an eternal purpose in mind. Whatever the blessing is, whether it's your finances, your business, the ability to sing. Some of you have an ability to sing. It just flows out of you, and it's so easy. There are others of you, that's not your gifting. And, and you're running off, and you're spending all kinds of money on voice lessons. Listen, save the money. Send it to missions. I'm just trying to help you out. And you're saying, but pastor, the Bible says make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Yes, but do it in your shower, all by yourself, just you and God. You can cast the devil off the soap rack. You can just have a revival all by yourself. That's not your gifting. That's okay. Some of you are just gifted with athletic ability. And I, I watched the NBA, and, and I watched those guys, and, and I said, Lord, when I get to heaven, I want to slam dunk like those guys on the NBA. It's not going to happen. That's not my gifting. I'm not going to strain myself because it's not my gifting. I have a friend. Uh, his name is Jeff. And everything he touches, it just turns to gold. And I was with him one day, and he was on his, he had a, a, his computer and his laptop, and we're talking, and he's, he's opened a book, and he's just going through this book, and he's punching in numbers, and he's just going crazy, and he's, you know, he's a multitasker. I said, Jeff, what are you doing? He said, I'm buying cattle. I said, you're buying cattle? He said, yeah. And he, he had this book, you know, with all these numbers of these, uh, these black heifer cows and stuff, you know, I, I don't know what it was, and. It's not my gifting. And, and I said, well, don't you got to go out there and look at him? He goes, oh, no, no, no. It's all based upon heredity and this and that and this bull and that bull and numbers and, and this, that. And I said, look, Jeff, I'm just going to go out there and say, give me five fat black ones over there. I want five black fat ones and I want five brown fat ones. He said, well, Randy, that might work for temporary, but if they don't have inside of them what they really need, you're going to be just not happy because you're based on emotions, and emotions are good servants, but poor masters. Wow. That's, that's his gifting. Whatever it is, it doesn't make a difference what the blessing is. You need to understand there is a reason for the blessing, an eternal purpose, a role for you to play. All those blessings are tools strategically maneuver, to maneuver you into a place of influence so God can fulfill his purpose in you. Did you hear that? All your giftings and blessings are tools to strategically maneuver you into a place of influence so God can fulfill his purpose in you. In fact, the Apostle Paul said that influence comes from God. Paul talks about the power to persuade or influence men's hearts, the power and ability it comes from God. Just like Esther, just like Nehemiah, Daniel, David, Moses, God strategically placed them as a tool to be used in his hand for his purpose and his glory. So God gives you those blessings, talents, and abilities because he has a purpose in your life. Now, the enemy wants to steal the purpose. The enemy wants to steal the purpose. Nehemiah recognized his purpose. 
Notice Satan or Lucifer, lucent, light bearer. And by the way, you need to hear me say that Lucifer or Satan is not the yin to God's yang. He's not equal with God. I know Hollywood around Halloween likes to put out all those scary movies that show the little scared priest being thrown around by some demon-possessed person. It's not going to happen. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. If you believe that, say amen. Lucifer was a created being, just like Michael and Gabriel, archangels, created beings in heaven, each one given certain giftings. Michael, the warring angel. Gabriel is the messenger angel. That's his gifting. Whenever Gabriel showed up, he had a pretty interesting message to give. Remember, Gabriel's the one that showed up to Mary and Joseph, and he said, you're going to have a son. Gabriel's the one that showed up to the parents of Samson and said, he shall be called a Nazarite. Gabriel is the one that showed up to give the message. Lucifer was the angel of light or the praising angel, and his entire gifting and ability was musical. To shower the throne of God with praise. The book of Isaiah tells us that in that process, he also was given a free will. God always gives a free will. And because he had a free will, he said four times in the book of Isaiah, I will be lifted up to the throne of God. I will sit at the right hand of God. Pride came in. And he allowed his purpose to be stolen. Oh, don't miss it. He was gifted, but he lost his purpose. So Satan knows if it happened to me, it could happen to you. Because God said, I will create those that none are, none are the same, and they shall shower my throne with praise. That's why the Bible says he inhabits the throne, the praises of God's people. The Greek word inhabit means sits down upon. The very moment you begin to praise God and worship God, the very spirit of God sits down upon you, sits within you. Whether you're in your living room at home all by yourself, or whether you're here on Easter Sunday morning, the very presence of God sits among us when we worship. Now, Lucifer, Satan, light bearer, was cast out. His name went from Lucifer or, Lu- or light bearer to deceiver the moment he was cast out. And he's very cunning. He's got giftings. And he realizes, I can't allow them to fulfill their purpose. But if I steal their gifting, they will recognize me and they'll come after me. So I want to stay in the shadows. I want to work in anonymity. So I got to create a train of thought that so fits their way of thinking, that they suppose it comes to their own line of reasoning. And I'll drop these thoughts in their mind and to see if I can get them to start to use the giftings for themselves. If I can get them to live for themselves. They're so gifted at business, and maybe they've got a six, seven-figure income, but they don't tithe. Because Satan's convinced you to live for yourself. Real quiet in here now. You see, the reason you have the gift to sing is not for you. It's for the glory of God. The anointing to preach is not for you, but for the glory of God. And remember, he will not try and steal the blessings or the gift. He'll, He'll steal the the, the purpose, 
And remember the Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variables, neither shadow of turning. Romans eleven twenty nine, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. In other words, God will give you giftings, but he never takes them back. God never takes his gifts back. But what does he take back? His presence or his anointing. And he lifts up and he walks away. The reason you have moved into that position on your job is not for you. It's for the glory of God. The reason your business is being financially blessed is because God gave you the talents and the abilities for the glory of God. God didn't have to give you that position or job to feed you. He could have fed you without you having a job. But he puts you in a, your current assignment for the glory of God. Some of you will email the office or people will email the office all, all year long. And they'll say, Pastor, Pastor, please pray for me. I'm the only Christian on my job. Please pray that I might leave. And I always send this message back. Praise God. That's why you're there. Duh. Duh. And they go, what do you mean, duh? Because he trusts you. He's given you giftings and abilities. He's placed you there strategically so that you could be used for his divine purpose. And they always email back the same thing. Oh, I never thought of that. <coughs> While speaking at a very large church in Arlington, Virginia, several months ago, and pastor leaned over during worship, and he said, hey, listen, at the conclusion, uh, I want you to come to the backstage area. I want to introduce you to the young lady who's leading worship. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to do that. Now, she was about 110 pounds soaking wet. Long blonde hair, real cute little thing. And we go backstage after service, and she's there with her kids and her husband and the whole praise team, and I was thanking them for all they did. And, and the pastor says, uh, and he, he says her name. He says, I want you to tell Pastor Randy what you do for a living. She goes, oh, no. He goes, yeah, yeah, tell him, oh, no. Yeah, go ahead. She looks at her husband. He goes, yeah, go ahead. She goes, okay. She said, well, I'm the head of the Secret Service team for Melania Trump. That's what I said. I said, what? Now, we're in Arlington, Virginia. And she said, yeah, I'm the head of the Secret Service team that protects Melania Trump. I said, get out of town. You're only about 110 pounds soaking wet. And her husband says, yeah, but she can hurt you. <laughs> She's just bad. And I looked at her and I said, that's amazing. And she, and, you know, after we all laughed a little bit and she looks at me and she says, you know, I really enjoyed your message. I really enjoyed your teaching. And, but you know what I enjoyed the most? I said, no, what did you enjoy the most? She said, when you gave the altar call, over 90% or near 100% of our church got up and ran to the altar. And we were all just laying around the altar. And she said, I know those people, and you don't, but I know them. And she said, did you see that really big guy as you're standing in the pulpit on the left-hand side? He was wearing that dark black suit. And I said, yeah, the big old shoulders and, and broad and Good-looking guy? She said, yeah. I said, why do you ask? She said, well, he's the head of President Trump's Secret Service team. 
and he's spirit-filled. And he's laying in that altar crying out to God. She began to move me in our mind's eye across that uh, that altar call. Did you see that one over there? They're NSA. This one over there was a four-star general. That one there is a brigadier general. That one over there works for TSA. That one over there is, I, I was literally blown away as the pastor sat there and said, we literally have some of the top echelon of the Pentagon and the White House sitting in church. When you gave that altar call, they ran down, they have served presidents, but they live for the king. Oh, you can clap your hands for that. Oh, come on. Don't patty cake. Yes. That young woman looked at me and she said, I want you to tell people all over the country, pastor, that at any given moment, at any given time in the White House, spontaneous praise and worship services are started in the hallway that people will just start singing and worshiping God. In Congress, she said, or in the Senate, and in parts of the Pentagon, it just, these people just begin to worship. And she looked at me and she said, I believe God has got many of us on assignment. Friends, there is no doubt that God's hand is moving. And many will say, well, you know what, Pastor Randy, you know, I, you talk like that about President Trump, and he says some really rough things. Yeah. But if God can use Artaxerxes, if God can use a donkey, God's hand is in this thing. Because the prayer of favor opens, closed. Come on now, I want you to get it. The prayer of favor opens closed. Say it again. The prayer of favor opens closed. Say it again. The prayer of favor opens closed doors. If you're going to reach your highest potential and fulfill God's will in your life, his mission for you, then you have to come to the understanding of the power of praying for God's favor in your life. We will have to develop and possess the same boldness like Nehemiah, Here's an eternal question. When's the last time you asked God to do something impossible or out of the ordinary in your life? Or do you just get up every morning and it's the same place, same thing? When's the last time you asked God to do something impossible or out of the ordinary in your life, in your church, in your marriage, for your home, for your children? I believe one reason we don't see God do great things in the American church is that we only ask for small things. See, most people pray over their food. They pray for protection. They ask God for wisdom. Those are all wonderful things. And please, don't get me wrong. Those are wonderful things. But I believe it's limiting the limitless Savior. There should be something you are praying about and asking God for that's so far out there, something that you cannot achieve on your own. Nehemiah, as well as the heroes of the faith listed in Hebrews 11, they dared to ask, and then they had the power and the faith to believe. Tonight, your dream may seem impossible. You may feel like you don't have the connections or the funding, but God is saying, dare to ask me to bring it to pass. Dare to ask me to connect you with the right people. Dare to ask me to flood you with my anointing and my giftings. See, too many times we pray for small things. I get caught in the trap myself. 
Have you ever found yourself as a parent praying, God, my child is making poor choices. Can you just help turn them around? Or am I the only one here that says that? I've got adult kids. You know, I'll be 54 in June for all the cards and letters that might come. Praise God. And my son Christian is 28, my, just turning 28 in a couple of days. My son uh, Morgan is 26. My son Quentin is 24, going to be 25. My daughter Ashton is going to be 22. And, and they, they love God. They, they, they are wonderful, but they're knuckleheads. They're knuckleheads. They, does anybody else have knucklehead kids that are good kids? They're just knuckleheads. Yeah. He, they're both raising their, your dad went like this. Knuckleheads. My son, Quentin, he's graduating uh, in May from the University of Arkansas, and uh, he's already landed a job. I'm bragging now. And he's already landed a job in the management, uh, management department of AT&T in Dallas at the international headquarters there. And we're so proud of him. And he, but he called me. He's a knucklehead. He called me, and he goes, hey, Dad, we got a problem. Now, Quentin's about 6'3". They all took after the white side of the family, not the Hispanic side, the white side. And <laughs> he's 6'3", and he goes, hey, Dad, we got a problem. I go, we got a problem? He goes, yeah, we got a problem. I go, what's the problem? He said, I lost my keys to my truck, and I parked it in the wrong parking lot here at school. And I go, we don't have a problem. You got a problem. I didn't park that truck there. You're 20-some-odd years old. You're a senior now. No, Dad, listen, I don't have the right sticker, and I can't find my keys, and they're going to tow my truck. Listen, babe, mijo, I'm sorry. I didn't park it there. You got a problem. You better get some more hours at the little restaurant you're working at, wait some tables, do something. He goes, Dad, I'm telling you, we got a problem. I go, Quentin, it's not my problem. He said, Dad, listen, I'm trying to tell you. They said if I don't move it by this Saturday night, they're going to charge. They're gonna, it's going to be $500 to get it out of the lot, impound. I said, Quinn, we don't have a problem. He goes, yes, we do, Dad. They said if I don't pay it, it's going on my school bill. We now have a problem. <laughs> I said, you knucklehead, why didn't you say that to begin with? I've been trying to tell you we got a problem, but don't worry. Mom and I worked it all out. I said, oh, you and your mother worked it out. He said, yes. At this time, I look over at my wife, and she is literally doubled over laughing. And I said, what is, how did you work it out? She goes, well, Mom, check your schedule, and you're speaking in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That means you're going down I-44. So what you can do is get up like four hours early, go down 44, take it over here towards Fayetteville, drop the keys off, and then go on to Tulsa. No problem. Mom said you'd love to do it. I looked at my wife and said, thanks, babe. (laughs) So there I am going down I-44, headed towards, you know, the cutoff for Fayetteville, and and it's drizzling, and I'm listening to Gaither Vocal Band, and we're singing, you know, and I'm having a great time. And then I started getting kind of angry at God. I said, God, my son's a knucklehead. Can you help him make better choices? And the Lord will use the most practical things to teach you the most prophetic truth. And the Holy Spirit whispered, mijo. See, because the Holy Spirit's Spanish. You don't know that, but we do. (laughs) Gloria, yo, amen. And the Holy Spirit says, Randy, is that all you want? 
Do you only want me to help them make better choices? I said, well, no, Lord. What do you really want? Well, God, I'm asking you to not only turn my child around, but use him in, in a great way. Let him touch people around the world. Let him be more of a threat to hell than hell is a threat to him. Father, let him rise up under the anointing and the purpose and the plan of God in his life. Give him a godly wife, Lord. Give him a prayer language. Father, let him shake the gates of hell, that the gates of hell shall not prevail in his kingdom. And as I began to pray that way, I went on for about 20 minutes. And finally, the Holy Spirit, when I finished, he whispered, then pray that way all the time. God-sized prayer. God's eyes. That's called praying the prayer of favor. Lord, I need a favor. There are some people that they'll pray, Lord, can you just help me pay the bills this month? If I can just get through the month, Lord, that'd be great. Those are nice prayers. But a prayer for God's favor is, God, I'm asking you to increase me in such a way that as I'm obedient in my tithing offering, in my giving back to you, that you'll bless us in such a way that we can not only pay off our house, but we can pay off my parents' house, or I could also give to missions. I could send money around the world to begin to, oh, come on, somebody catch it. I want to build the kingdom. Say with me, the prayer of favor opens closed doors. The key is you have to know what you believe. And so many times, We really don't know what we believe. And if you don't know what you believe, Satan is able to create a train of thought that so fits your way of thinking that you get sidetracked. That's why you've got to be in one of those classes every Sunday, like the one I sat in back here on Romans. It was very, very good. I'm telling you, you need to sit in that Romans class. You'll learn. And they didn't pay me to say that, but I know he's excited I did. And that's why you got to be in church, that you're around people that have the same mindset you have. But you have to know what you believe. Let me tell you what I believe, and I'm going to wrap this up here in just a moment. And If you hear something you believe, you go ahead and shout amen. I believe in God's written word. I believe in God's promises. I believe what God says is true. I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who is our Lord and our Savior, who is conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. I believe he descended into the gates of hell, and on the third day he rose again, and he's now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. I believe in all 66 books of the Bible. I believe the time is coming when Jesus the Christ will return to begin to take his bride back to heaven. That is when he will judge the living and the dead whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. I believe in the Holy Spirit who was sent from the Father as the mirror image of Jesus Christ on planet Earth until he comes again. I believe in the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. I believe that in our lifetime we will hear the trumpet sound of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the air with King Jesus. If you believe like I do, then somebody just shout amen. Amen. The prayer of favor 
opens closed doors. Point number two, and I'm just going to be very, very brief on this and get you in this altar. The prayer for favor places the hand of God on my life. The prayer of favor places the hand of God on my life. Look at verse 8. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Nehemiah paid the price in prayer for the hand of God to rest on him, and he did not leave this world the same way he found it. I love it when he says, and because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. Someone else says that as well, about the presence of the Lord being on them. It's found in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. That phrase defines the specific activity of the Holy Spirit. And if you'll pay very close attention for the next five minutes, you're going to learn something about the anointing that will change your life. If you're with me, say I'm with you. When it says the Spirit of the Lord is on me, that defines a specific activity of the Holy Spirit's ministry. When we speak about the anointing, we're describing the Holy Spirit making the presence of the Almighty God real in the average person or the average place. It's the anointing upon you that makes you extraordinary. Looking again at Luke 4, 18, Jesus goes on to explain the purpose of the blessing or why the Spirit of the Lord was on him. And it's for a specific activity because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Listen, the reason for the blessing was Jesus was setting the example that his time for his public ministry was about to begin. And there had to be a transference of the anointing that he received at water baptism. He went under, and the dove came upon him. He received the Holy Spirit. But now it's time for ministry. And there had to be a transference of the, of the anointing from upon him, from within upon, up on, up on. And then he says, It's time to preach the good and favorable year of the Lord. See, when that transference takes place from within you to upon you, there's an overlording or overpowering of any other thing that would seek to hinder or dominate a situation that you are in. Through the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of heaven is being made manifest in the lives of average, ordinary people. Have you ever met someone that when they walked in or when you were around them, they, you just sensed they've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. His presence on you overlords demons and drives them out. His presence on you overlords sickness and causes health to flow. His presence on you overlords guilt and condemnation and brings healing, grace, and forgiveness. His presence on you begins to... Overlord, confusion and brings peace. His presence on you overlords fear and brings hope. You're walking towards the office and you've been fasting and praying and suddenly there's a transference of the Holy Spirit from within you upon you and somebody at your office says, you got a moment? 
I've just been noticing something's different about you. And suddenly now there's a vast door that is open to you because the hand of God is resting on you. Oh, friends, do you agree with me that we need the presence of the Holy Spirit flowing in and through our lives on a daily basis? When Jesus says to set the oppressed free, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, this is referring to God's jubilee period where slaves go free. When all debts have been canceled and people have their possessions recovered. Understand in Israel, every seven years, they had something called the year of jubilee. The seventh year is the year of jubilee, when all debts were canceled. And Jesus is saying, we're not just talking about material debts being canceled, but we're talking about physical, mental, emotional, spiritual Everything recovered because of who I am. I am the Messiah. And I'm going to allow my anointing to flow. In this statement, Jesus was referring to the benefits of the anointing. The benefits of the anointing is to give you power, presence, and the promise of God's purpose and favor in your life on a daily basis. So that people say, what's that peace in your eyes? There's something different about you. I was sitting in the airport. And they announced my name over the loudspeaker, and they said, uh, Mr. Rose, please come to the counter. So I went to the counter. They said, we run out of seats in coach, so we have to bump you up to first class. So I said, praise God, I receive it. And they sat me next to a multimillionaire. I know he's a multimillionaire because he told me he was a multimillionaire. He said, my name is Frank Rosario. Frank was a very large man. He said, I've got a Rolex watch. I said, wow, I got a Timex. <laughs> Frank thought that was funny. He was drinking highballs and martinis, and he's drinking beer in the first class, and he's just having a grand old time. He said, I've got 30 people that work for me back there in coach. I said, well, that explains why I'm sitting up here, so appreciate you. He said, I got two computer firms, one in Dallas and one in Atlanta. I said, well, that's great, but praise God, that's awesome. He said, I rent the top floor of the Ritz-Carlton, in Maui, Hawaii, every year just for me and my kids and my wife. I said, wow. He said, I've sent my sons to the Ivy League universities. And I'm sitting there, and this guy was high living, low life. And I just began to pray in the spirit under my breath. And I began to say, Lord, take him out, Lord. Lord, just... Use me to do something in this man's life. And the Holy Spirit whispered, answer his questions with peace, courtesy, and long-suffering. Well, it's a long flight, so it's long-suffering. So after he told me and boasted about all the things he had, he looks at me and he says, now tell me what you do. And I said, well, Frank, I am a chief spokesman for the richest Jew in the world. He didn't think it was funny. He said, what do you really do? And I told him what I did. I said, I'm a minister. I'm a pastor. And he said, you're all crooks. Now, coming from Frank, that was a compliment. The moment he found out that I was an ordained minister and the ministry I had, the national ministry we have, he wanted to know everything about every fallen TV preacher. He wanted to know doctrinal, but he had doctrinal questions. 
theological questions. He was searching. And in my spirit, I was praying, Lord, I need an overlording of this situation. So Holy Spirit, come from within, rest upon. After I started answering his questions for a while, he stops drinking. He looks out the window first class, and he looks back at me. He goes, you know, he said, you really irked me. I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah, you really ticked me off. But it's not you because you don't have much, I can tell. He said, but there's something around you that's driving me crazy. His presence on you. Overlords fear, guilt, and condemnation. Overlords confusion and brings peace. He looks out the window and he looks back at me. Now tears are flowing. And he says, well, you know, Randy, I don't don't believe my wife loves me. My kids only call me when they want something. He said, and you are making me feel like all I have and all the wealth In everything I own, all I have means nothing, and the little bit you have means everything. And I just began to pray, Holy Spirit, just overlord. There's a reason that I'm sitting here for a purpose. It just doesn't happen that I get bumped up to first class. So, Lord, there's got to be a reason. Nehemiah understood his purpose and his position. Do you? Purpose and position. Do you think it's an accident this church is here? Do you think it's an accident you've planted the other church? Purpose and position. Purpose and position. You think it's an accident that Nehemiah is sitting there in the same court next to Esther? And I'm sure her uncle's not too far away, Mordecai. Purpose and position. He looks out the window. He looks back at me. And he grabs my hand, which is very scary. When a large man grabs your hand, I wanted to say, excuse me, you don't know me like this. He grabs my hand and he lays it on his chest. And he really can't turn because he's a large man. So, so he's kind of turned cockeyed and he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and he's, my hand. And he begins to break down and weep. And he says, you're a pastor. I said, yes. He said, you know what to do. I'm lost. I'm lost. Sunday morning, the teacher made reference to when you bring someone to Christ, you walk them down the Roman road. That's why you got to be in that class. And I walked him down the Roman road. He accepted Christ. He was beaming. We get off the plane. He's just jumping up and down. He's so excited. He said, now what? I said, I don't know. i got to catch another flight. See you, bro. got to go. He goes, he goes, no, 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 no. I said, well, Frank, where do you live? He said, Somerville, South Carolina. Purpose, position, 
I said, Frank, I just preached a two-week revival in Somerville, South Carolina. He said, you did? What church? I, show, I told him. He goes, bro, we live in a subdivision right behind that church. Purpose? Position? I said, I want you to go to that church. He said, I can't go to that church. It's the white church. It's where, you know, it's the, that's the white church. He goes, yeah, I ain't white, man, and, and they're not going to like me there. It's the white church. I said, it's not the white church, Frank. It's the red brick church with the big white fountain out front. <laughs> he said, they won't let me go. I said, listen, Frank, I know the pastor. If he'll let this Puerto Rican sleep in his guest room in his house, he'll let you go to his church. That made him so excited. He wanted to hide. He said, bro, you slept in the dude's house, man. That's awesome. (laughs) I wasn't eavesdropping. I really was. He was calling his wife, and I'm listening. And he said to her, no, me, me, I want you to go. I want you to go to that church. No, it's not the white church. It's the red brick church. (laughs) Oh, we're like sheep that have gone astray, you know. I get a call several months later from the lead pastor. Larry and I are talking, and he goes, hey. Uh, Frank Rosario, man. I go, yeah, it's a great deal. And we're talking back and forth. And he said, well, you know, he came to our church. He, got, he gave his testimony. And just before we hung up, he goes, hey, Rand, did you know he's a multimillionaire? I said, yeah. He's been a blessing, man, to our church. What's your purpose? What's your position? I want the musicians to come forward. God's calling this church. And there has to be a transference of the presence of God from within you to upon you. The book of Acts tells a story of a handful of men and women who by the power of the Holy Spirit given on the day of Pentecost did not leave their, self, their, their, their lives the same way they found it. They were ordinary people who God enabled to do extraordinary things. I don't know about you, but I don't want to leave this world the same way I found it. And there are so many times I said, Lord, that you would use us for such a time as this. As I close, let me give you a stark contrast to a man who took for granted his giftings and his abilities, his position and his purpose. The book of Judges, chapter 13, speaks of a man by the name of Samson. The Bible says that Samson was a judge of Israel. When we speak of judges, we tend to think of our contemporary definition of people who sit on legal benches hearing court cases. But the judges of Israel were not these types of people. They were essentially warriors, gifted men who were raised up by God and gifted for a specific purpose. In many instances... The children of Israel, because of their disobedience and violation of God's law, would be taken captive like Nehemiah was by the Babylonians in Persia. And God would have mercy on them because he would hear the people crying out for help. And he would raise up a gifted, anointed, supernatural leader with a purpose. Samson's whole purpose was to turn the judgment of God off of the children of Israel back onto the Philistines. In our Western mentality, we, we have a tendency to think that Samson was this he-man. Huge muscles. 
I can't wait to get to heaven because I got a picture of Samson in my mind. I think he looked like Stephen Urkel. Wouldn't that be awesome, dude? If Samson really was Stephen Urkel? Because it would be just like God. It was the Spirit of the Lord that came up on him that gave him the ability. It would be just like God to make him look like Stephen Urkel just to show the world it has nothing to do with you, babe. It has everything to do with the giftings and the abilities I gave you. And the Bible says, you can play softly for me if you guys, just real soft. The Bible says that Samson took the Nazarite vow. In essence, those of us who are ordained ministers, we take the Nazarite vow as well. The Nazarite vow consisted of three things. We will not drink any wine or alcohol, fruit of the vine. You will not touch the dead things of life or the culture of the dead things. I can preach a whole series of messages on what God is talking about, the culture of the dead things. Samson literally encapsulates those things. And third, they would not cut their hair. It was an outward manifestation of an inward commitment that my thought process is based on God. Samson was an amazingly gifted man. He threw it all away because he made subtle but serious mistakes. On his way to sleep with a Philistine woman, Samson was a he-man with a she-weakness. And he just loved the coastal Philistine women. In fact, his father Manoah actually asked him, can't you find a wife from the ladies of Israel, daughters of Israel? And he said, no, 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 I like those over there. Because they dress seductively. He's on his way to go and have this affair with this woman, and a lion jumps out of the forest. And the Bible says, the Spirit of the Lord came up on him. As a reminder, my hand is on your life, son. And when that gifting and that ability and that came upon him, he tore the lion as if it was a lamb because his giftings were to set the people free. And Samson tosses it aside, and he says, well, I guess if God is with me, then I'll just keep going where I'm going. And he goes, and he has this affair, and we know he's sleeping with this woman for a long time because when he comes back, the reading of the Scripture tells us that the bones have been bleached white in the carcass of the lion. Those of you that are hunters, you know it takes several weeks or a month or so or even longer to bleach a bone white in the sun. And there's honeycomb that is attached to the inside of the lion. And instead of saying, this should have been a reminder that my hand is on your life, it should have been an altar that God came upon me here. He takes for granted his giftings, his anointings. He reaches down, he touches the dead thing, and he begins to eat it, and he moves on. And he breaks his vow. <coughs> so we all talk about Delilah and the haircut. But Samson was already way on his way past breaking those vows before he even cut his hair. 
He even threw a party for the Philistines that lasts several days. And there's no possible way that you could have a party that lasts several days for the Philistines where the alcohol wouldn't flow freely. So the Bible doesn't actually come out and say Samson drank alcohol, but we know he was partaking in a lifestyle. We know he was partaking in a culture so that he could better himself and his secret needs. And that blew the mind of the Philistines. They're so confused. They're watching a man who in one hand has got the mercy and the anointing and the gifting of God upon him, and on the other he's sleeping with their women. How many times does the world look at us? And they see the hand of God. They go, something's different, but yet they're confusing me. They're, they're living like us. But yet I see something different in them. The grace of God in Samson's life is amazing. But he finally reaches a point where Delilah says, Samson, can you tell me the secret that I might afflict you? You know you're pretty blind when your woman says, I want to afflict you, and it doesn't scare you. He said, afflict me? You? Well, if I cut my hair. The binding, blinding, grinding power of sin. He's so blinded. America, you hear me. You know you're blind to sin. When a governor of the United States of America can say, we'll take the child and lay them over in a warming dish, a plate, the governor of Virginia, and leave them there and give the mother the choice whether she wants to kill the child or not. You know you're blind when, as a church body, it doesn't offend you to have a culture all around us that's blatantly coming against what you believe. Don't lose your purpose. Don't lose your purpose. And everything in me right now is saying, I've got to get you into this altar, and I've got to get you crying out to God, Lord, that we would fulfill the purpose and the plan in our life. That, Lord, you use me, and I'll do whatever you want me to do, Lord. I'll go where you have me to go. I believe this church is sitting literally on a powder keg of anointing. You are this close to exploding into all-out revival if you would begin to fulfill your purpose, every head bowed, every eye closed. Just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. But I only want you to stand if you're ready to fulfill your purpose. To say, Lord, I don't want to miss you. I want to pray a God-sized prayer. I want you to begin to ask God right now for a God-sized prayer, wherever you are. Lord, put something in me. Put something in me, Lord. I need a God-sized prayer. Not just an ordinary prayer. I need a God-sized prayer. And then when I count to three, 
If you're longing for the Holy Spirit to come from within you, you received him at salvation. He's already in you. Now there's got to be a transference from within you upon you. The first time I felt that transition, my knees buckled. And we're about to come into a, what they used to call an old-fashioned Holy Spirit-tarian meeting. Where we're just going to come and lay in God's presence. So here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. Whether I'm 70, whether I'm 80 or 17, I want to fulfill my purpose, Lord. Use me, God. Yes, Lord. That, Lord, we would fulfill our position. Use us like you did Nehemiah. 